Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 18. forget as we we read we're of course this is the word of God all of it is the word of God and sometimes we read the words of Jesus himself which is what we're primarily looking at in Matthew 18 and and don't forget that the words of Jesus are the words of the father right because he only spoke that which the father gave he and so uh, dovetailing with the first hour so we're not hearing we're not hearing simply a man we are actually hearing God, and uh, who 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 was no less than a man as he spoke these words. Um, but uh, so we can't, you know, we don't want to. We don't want to write the narrative ourselves. We don't want to read God's word and make it say what we want to say. And there's a danger of doing that for us mere mortals. We because sometimes we don't like what we're reading, um, but we can't do that. And so I, I trust that we will have submissive hearts to hear what the Spirit has to say to us today. Yeah, you did hear me right. The Spirit, the Father, Son, and Spirit meeting here, right here in this Word. I trust that we'll hear Him. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That makes me kind of emotional just to read that question. I don't want that. I don't want that kind of spirit myself that would ask a question like that. Then Jesus called a little child to him. And thankfully, this is recorded for us to help us. Set him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, unless you, disciples, are converted unless you, us, 2,000 years later, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives One little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, whoever offends one of these little ones, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned In the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin or offend, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire.
fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. I'll stop the reading there. I'm hoping by the time we're done, you're going to see how verses 6 through 9 especially go together. Because it almost seems like, as you read it, it's like maybe two separate messages, two separate thoughts. But I don't think so. I think we must. That's one of the reasons I read the beginning of verse 10 to tie it together. Because he is still talking about the same thing in verses 8 and 9 that he's talking about before and after. He's just making a specific point that I hope to demonstrate to you. It's a serious point. But it does connect. And really what we're seeing in this passage is Jesus' care about offenses. And especially offenses against His brethren who are called the little ones. It is a serious matter. And so Jesus has answered His disciples, I'm sure, quite differently than they anticipated. His answer extends well beyond what they had in mind, no doubt. And even what they had in mind, the answer that He gave, was quite different than what they very likely anticipated. And so with a little child before them, Jesus tells them that greatness in His kingdom is not about status. It's not about position. His is not like the kingdoms of the world. And he'll, he's going to talk about this again in a later point in, the, in Matthew. We'll discuss that when we get to it. Now, he says to them, you have to be converted. We have to be converted. You see, you, you have to become as little children to enter. None of us qualify by nature. And therefore, you have to be converted to become like little children. I think this is somewhat of what John was writing about in John chapter 1 when he said, as many as received Him, to them gave He the power or the right or the authority to become the children of God. Even to those who believe on His name. So little children are ones with simple trust and dependence upon Jesus Simplicity. And I like to call it childlike faith in this sense. And children, I, I, I want you to hear this because children, you are not beyond coming to Jesus. I'm talking to literal children here. I'm talking to literal little children. There are little children who come to Jesus with that simple trust and simple dependence, and they grow up their whole lives simply trusting, simply depending, and they never outgrow that. We must never outgrow that. Even if we came to that simple faith, Brother Dan, at 70, what was it? 70, how old were you? 70, when you came to that simple? 73 years old. A little child. A little child. None of us are beyond that. 
And I'm thankful for that. And Jesus is pressing that. And these are the ones who humble themselves. These are the ones that Jesus says in verse 4, humble them, whoever humbles them. These are the ones who humble themselves. Which is what these disciples needed. And brethren, it's what you and I need. It's what we need. We never grow beyond this need. Life in His kingdom is not self-promoting. It is self-denying. Right? And He said this back in chapter 16 and verse 24. If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow. You can't follow Jesus. And really, that, that's, that's the thrust of you. Follow me. That's the thrust of his message. Follow me. You cannot follow him and follow yourself. You can't follow him and be full of yourself. Can't do that. A spirit of humble, loving service is the nature of his kingdom. And so these disciples were chosen to be leaders, 12 of them. There were other disciples, by the way, but these were the 12 that had been called to be the apostles, the leaders. One of them, we know, was a son of perdition. And he's going to be exposed. And he's one of them that's being spoken to by Jesus here. But Jesus has called them and he set them apart to participate in the foundation of his New Testament church. But unless they experienced a heart level change, they would be in no condition to serve as his representatives. They would be no in no condition to serve as leaders. And by the way, I think that's primarily who Jesus is talking to here, though the application is to all of his disciples. But there is no one who qualifies really to be a leader, a teacher without the spirit that Jesus is speaking about to his disciples. And so that all, all that he says really in chapter 18 is part of preparing the disciples to view his kingdom and life in his kingdom properly. So in verses 5 through 9, Jesus teaches us that his kingdom is not made up of individuals who are isolated from one another. It's not about me. It's not each one seeking his own interest. It's not about vying for position. Paul put it this way two times. Ephesians 4 and in Romans chapter 12. We are members one of another. Do you remember that? Members one of another. That's huge. That's huge. And of course, union with Christ is the foundation of that, right? Members. Want to, and Jesus wants, to, wants us to see ourselves this way. And He wants to see us in relationship to one another in this way. He wants the disciples to see this. They, they weren't seeing this yet. They were still. Their concern, who's the greatest, was ignoring this fundamental principle. Of his life that he wanted them to have and to share. As born again 
little children. We are to see one another in our relationship to our father through Jesus. And that in verse five, I think, is a a, a primary point. Whoever receives one little child, you're not talking about just physically numerical, you know, the, the, the little child, but one of the believing ones. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives, receives me. And in Luke 9, 48, I alluded to this last week. This is Luke's account of this event. Whoever receives this little child in my name, Jesus said, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you. All will be, will be great. And it's kind of amazing because in a sense, as we are joined with Christ and as we are united with the Father, you can't get any greater than that in one sense. But in another sense, that is the very thing that brings us to the place of that spirit that we are supposed to have in his kingdom, the spirit that is spoken of here as a spirit of humility, a childlike trust, simplicity of faith. Dependence upon him. John put it this way. First John chapter five and verse one, he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him. See, this is what that's what we like to think about. He and me. It's me and you, God. This is what John says. And everyone who loves him who begot. Also. Loves him who is begotten of him. Do you hear that? That's the relationship. We love one another because of our relationship in Jesus with other little children. And so how we treat one another, how we treat his little ones matters to him. It's a serious matter. And this is really the emphasis of verses five through nine. Aimed especially, as I said, at Christian leaders, but applicable to us all now. Most of what Jesus says in these verses are words of warning. And we're going to read them that way. We're going to hear them that way. His father has said, hear him. He just said that. Hear him. We want to do that. And he uses strong language. And I think this is just really a reflection of the jealousy of Christ and the jealousy of God for his children. He loves us with a holy jealousy. He loves the children of his kingdom and he wants nothing to come in the way of their fellowship with him, with his father and with one another. And that really is what is unpacked in this whole chapter, Matthew 18. So may the Lord give us understanding and affect our lives for good as we hear his words this morning. The first thing I want us to see is the possibility of being an offense to a believer. It's a real possibility for us to be an offense to a believer. There are degrees to this matter of being an offense. And of course, as we'll see, there is an offense that comes from the world. But there is an offense that can come in relationship to our brethren in Christ If we are controlled in our hearts by pride. And and beloved, I I hope you will acknowledge it's a problem for every single one of us. I hope you can at least if maybe if you don't feel it, maybe you can at least acknowledge that it is a problem for every single one of us. 
But if we are controlled in our hearts by pride, who is the greatest? We will not see ourselves. Pride is blinding. We will not see ourselves. And we will not see our brethren properly. And we will be potential instruments of offense. And Jesus is confronting this. So what does it mean to offend one of these little ones? This is what... This is what Jesus is dealing with. What does it mean then to offend one of these little ones? I, the word spiritual child abuse came to mind. And I'm afraid that there is that going on in religious and Christian circles. And brethren, it can happen at Community Baptist Church. And we've got to be on guard that we're not guilty of spiritual child abuse. Offending one of Jesus, little one of God's little ones who believe in Him. What is this? Well, let me first acknowledge several things that it is not. And it's important to determine this in light of the stern warnings that Jesus gives. We'll get to that. But in light of these stern warnings, it's important that we understand what is He talking about? This is not simply an emotional injury or disturbance. You know, like when somebody says, You offended me, meaning you hurt my feelings. That's not what Jesus is not talking about that. He's not talking about your feelings. That is not the issue here. Okay? It's something far greater than that. Far deeper than that. And that's a whole other message. I'm not saying that's not a matter that should be perhaps discussed in light of other Scripture. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about offenses that result from preaching the gospel. Remember 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, an offense. And to the Greeks, foolishness. He's not talking about that. He's not warning us against offending people in the preaching of the gospel. If it's the preaching of the gospel that offends or confronting someone with sin. He's not talking about that. Somebody might be offended. They might trip up over you confronting them with their sin. And by the you know, when we get to chapter 18 and verse or excuse me, verse 15 of this chapter, we're going to see that that's a necessary thing to confront sins. And yet even in these which would be we might say legitimate offenses, offending is not our goal. See chapter 17 and verse 27 Remember, I preached on this already. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, Jesus says. So here on one hand, he says, lest we offend them. Okay. And now he's dealing with these offenses. But he knows he's going to have Jesus offended people. But it wasn't his goal to do so. In fact, to avoid an offense in that case, he went to great measures, you know, a miraculous providing of uh, the coins for the paying of the temple tax. I'm not going to go back and talk about that, but you understand the point. We don't want our manner, our way, our approach to be a stumbling block, an offense, even in areas where an offense is perhaps necessary. No, I, I really do believe that Jesus is speaking of more here than even a single sin, though you can't rule that out because a single sin can lead to much more. But I believe he, 
Because, and one of the reasons I say that is because of verse 15. He's going to deal with that kind of thing in verse 15. That is a sin. But here he doesn't use the word sin. He uses the word offense or a stumbling. So to offend is to trip someone up. It's to cause someone to stumble and even fall away. You might even think in terms of apostasy. Because that's what it can lead to. And so it may be that you are a cause of someone sinning. And of course, you can see the New King King James translators translated it this way. And really, this is an interpretive translation. I think it's best to leave it open-ended because Jesus is not identifying specifically. He says, And so when he says, and whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, the New King James, and in verses 8 and 9, causes you to sin, that's the translator saying, we believe this is what he's talking about. And certainly there is sin involved. But this stumbling or offense is, I believe, more severe than simply a sin. It may be temptation into some sin. I I, I grant that. I, I believe that to be true. But this offense is aimed at destroying the believer's simple trust and dependence on Jesus. That's what he's talking about. His little children. And so it's that which actually is going to stumble somebody and trip somebody up into a level of offense that moves them away from Jesus Christ. And and brethren, it's possible. It is possible to be an instrument to damage or destroy another's relationship to God. Uh, Do you remember Jeroboam? Over and over you read that. If you read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you'll see he caused Israel to sin. We like to say, well, nobody can cause anybody else to do anything. Well, God says otherwise. You can be an instrument. To cause someone to sin. He made Israel to sin, it says, over and over again. That's not the only one who did that. And so we must think about the impact of our choices upon others, especially fellow believers. Now, Jesus acknowledges in verse 7 that there's no way that you can avoid offenses in this fallen world. And so you, as a little child, you need to think this way. You, you can never avoid the offenses about they're everywhere. You can't avoid them. So there's a way in which you need to think about this. But he's writing to his disciples to primarily talk about them being an offense. We live in a world full of offenses aimed to trip up and even destroy Christians, especially in the age in which we live. It's always been that way. But now you have access in your hand 24-7, right? At things that the world is producing, that the enemy is producing to divert God's children from a childlike relation of trust and dependence upon Jesus. Through science, through philosophy, when our children grow up and they go out into the world and they may have been in this protected environment, you may have kept all of the world out of your home, but at some point they're going to go, they're going to go out to this world and they're going to hear things they've never heard before, right? There's offenses out there. 
And I, I'm, I'm, I'm emotional because this is real personal with some of my own. When they were confronted with things and they had, they couldn't defend themselves and they, and they tripped and they fell and they didn't just fall into sin. They fell away from Jesus. You understand this is serious business. And it can happen in this world, you see. That, that's the goal of this world. Don't be gullible. Don't think that this world is your friend. It's not your friend. It's not. It's not. You understand it. There's a movement in this world to move you away from that simple, childlike trust and dependence upon Jesus. Jesus says, woe to the world. Do you see that in verse 7? Woe to the world because of this. He sees it. He sees it. And it fits within His wise plan, God's wise plan to permit it to be so. I don't fully grasp all of that, but I just know that it's so. And like a little child, I'm listening to Jesus, you see. And I'm hearing you say, this is the way it is. Whoa. Whoa. I'm not going to leave them alone. I'm going to come and I'm going to judge the world. And the world that's been guilty of this, I'm going to judge the world. He's not ignoring that. It will fall on all instruments of offense against His brethren, little children, and those who have been responsible for moving people away from Jesus. But it seems, as I said, that Jesus' words are primarily aimed at His own disciples, warning them to not be like the world. Don't be like... like, This is too important. Relationship with Me is too important to be an instrument. It's not about you. It's not about how great you are. It's about your relationship to Me and your assistance, your aiding others in relationship to Me. Not being an offense. A stumbling block. And so, brethren, we should hear as the, as the Lord speaks to the disciples, you and I today and I especially bear responsibility for how we treat little children who believe on Him. Brethren, we need to be aware of the possibility of being an offense to brothers and sisters in Christ. I, will, I don't want to take a whole lot of time on this. A whole message, message could be devoted to this. But let me just remind you. That it is possible to be a source of stumbling to the little children of God in several different ways. One is by our teaching and our preaching. And I've become more sensitive to this in my own life and ministry, my own, my own mind and relationship to God's little children. In Revelation, just to pick a couple of references in Revelation 2, 14 and 15, writing to the church at Pergamos, Jesus, these are Jesus words. I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, Jesus said. 
And what is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? I think it's probably some sort of perversion of grace that opened up the door for people to think, or we might even think of antinomianism, that idea that, well, you know, I'm safe and secure in Jesus so I can do whatever I please. Sin is no longer an issue. And so, sexual immorality and idolatry becomes irrelevant within churches who are taught this kind of thing. As Jude said, spoke of those who turned the grace of God into lewdness or lasciviousness. We dare not teach in a way that would lead to that. In 2 Timothy, Paul wrote, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer. And again, we're living in an age where the message of these kind of teachers spread. I mean, you have access to it. And you have to filter these things. And that's why, brethren, sometimes, and I'm jumping ahead here, but I would say sometimes those are the things that need to be cut off. I'm reading reading a book right now that I just last night the thought came to me and I I'm wondering if it's the spirit of God saying something to me and saying you know Kyle you don't need to be reading that and I'm not talking about immoral trash I'm talking about theological stuff that's just exercising my spirit in a direction that is not moving me to Christ and I don't want to come to you with that kind of stuff. There's Hymenaeus and Philetus. They are of this sort, he says, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. You hear that? Isn't that amazing? It's possible, in other words. It's possible. Or by carelessly impacting our weaker brethren in our choices. And you know, Romans 14 is a prime passage on this idea of not destroying our brethren by our choices, the weaker brethren. But I want to read to you First uh, Corinthians chapter eight. I'm going to flip over there right quick. And again, I'm not belaboring this point. I think you you know what I'm talking about here. First Corinthians eight. But see the seriousness of it in verse nine. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours. Yes, you can. Paul is, you know, he's, he's dealing with a, a specific issue. Yes, you, you have the freedom to eat. You know, I, that, that, that meat being offered to idols didn't do anything to that meat. So, yeah, you have the liberty. But there's some among you that are affected negatively by that. So beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block, an offense to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple. Remember, knowledge puffs up. He began the chapter there. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. Right? So if any of you see, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? He shouldn't have because his conscience was saying no. And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother 
What's the next word? Are you, do y'all see that? That's strong language. Because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Now we know, comparing Scripture with Scripture, that no one can perish for whom Christ died, right? We know that. We care. The analogy of the faith is necessary here. But he's talking about a very destructive impact upon a a brother or sister, one for whom Christ died. He's talking about something that's very dangerous, destructive. But when you thus sin against the brethren, listen to this, you are members one of another. When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, conscience you sin against Christ. You receive one of these little ones in my name. You receive me. You are members one of another. How we treat one another is a reflection of our treatment of Christ. Therefore, Paul's conclusion, it's severe. He says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And we can read that and we, we can sort of come forth with all kinds of caveats that make that statement meaningless. But what I would say to you and me today in the light of the words of our Savior, the words of God, this is something that we must not take lightly. It is possible that we can influence not only in the ways that we just mentioned, we can influence also by an example, a sinful example. Others, which I see to be the connection with verses eight and nine. Because here he turns to, he says, if your hand, if thy hand, you as an individual, your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, etc. In your eye, cut it off. So if it causes you to stumble into, I don't think we can think, we can say just a sin, but I think that he, the idea is more of a pattern, a direction of, if, if you're, if you are offended, if you're, if you stumble in that way, it does not just affect you. How many preachers and church leaders have fallen and thereby influence vulnerable little ones? There are cases, and I know of specific cases where it has come to light that a pastor has been engaged secretly in all kinds of immoral activity in his life. No one knew about it. And then it came to light, and guess what? A number of people in the congregation were also guilty of the same thing. It has this kind of effect. And not only that, when a trusted man, man of God, falls, and I'm not saying they're all not men of God, we can fall, but, and still be men of God, but when a trusted man of God falls, doesn't it have a ripple effect upon the community of saints? Negatively? Even in some cases, leading others down the same path. And so while every little one, and please hear me, because if you are a child of God, you're a little one, you are responsible for your own choices. You can't blame anyone else. While that is true, we must guard our hearts and check our lives to avoid anything that might serve to trip up, discourage, or spiritually destroy another one. Now, this matter is so serious 
that Jesus issues some of his most stern warnings in his ministry right here in this passage. That's how serious this is in verses six, eight and nine. Before I go any further, let me assure you that I agree with what you heard in the last hour, that our security is in our union with Christ Because in our union with Christ, we're in union with the Father and the Spirit keeps us. And therefore, you cannot fall, fall away completely forever. You cannot. In fact, that's part of the doctrine of the chastening of our Father in Scripture, right? And keeping us and and restoring us. If we do go off the path, you see, he loves us that much. He won't let us go. We can't be lost. So don't think that's what's being said here. That once you're in, you can be out, right? That can't, that can't happen. And yet, is it, I, 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 in fact, verses 10 through 14 is all about that. And I'm, uh, the verse that Michael quoted in the last hour is there, verse 11, you know, that the, the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost, like a good shepherd, chief shepherd. But that's, that's for next week, Lord willing. But this week, while all of that is true, he nevertheless holds us accountable. Okay, he holds you accountable. This is the message of all of Scripture, New Testament, as well as the old. He holds us accountable. And so you see in verses six, eight and nine, this comparative language Language of relativity, comparative language. He says it would be better in verse 6. And it is better, verse 8. It is better in verse 9. It would be better for him. For who? For the one who offends. The, The one who, as the New King James translates it, causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin to be the agent, to be the instrument of the fall or the falling away of the movement of one of his little ones from him. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Think about this. As you relate to little ones who believe in him. Think about this as you relate to one another, brethren, as you wait, relate to those who are his children. And listen, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't excuse yourself saying, well, I don't believe they're one of his children. Don't do that. You understand what I'm saying? I can abuse them. I can do whatever I want with them because I don't even believe they're one of his children. Don't do that. You are not sitting on the throne. And so if it's someone who has given some evidence that they are believing in Jesus, though it may not be as complex as your faith, it may not be as deep as your faith, as mature as your faith, maybe it's just, I mean, when when I get a, a testimony, a written testimony from a young child in this church, and I do that, I've done that over the 20 some odd years I've been here, and when that letter comes, I read it, and sometimes I weep because I'm, I'm not necessarily totally convinced that the person, is, the child is born again. But I'm telling you this, I do not want to cause that child to stumble. 
I do not want to lead that child away from Jesus. I want to leave him to him, you see. Do you understand what's going on here? You say, well, preacher, you can't give life. I'm well aware of that. But I can lead them to Jesus who does give life, right? Jesus here is not saying that this is what is supposed to be done. Do you hear that? That's why I emphasize it would be better. He's not saying do it. He's not saying, okay, if uh, tie a millstone around the neck of people like this, throw them in the depths of the sea. And strong language that he uses, not just, you know, throw a little lightweight anchor. This is a heavy, heavy stone he's talking about here. And he doesn't say into the shallow end of the pool. He says the deep end of the pool. They'll never come. What's he saying? He's saying it's better. It would be better to be dead than be the instrument to cause one of his brethren to sin or fall away from simple trust in him. That's how you need to hear this. This is how jealous he is of his own. And this is how he views anyone being an offense, a stumbling block. Tripping up someone. One of his own. And then in verses 8 and 9, he says, it is better again. Again, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye calls it, I mean, Jesus, okay, we got it. Let's move on. No, he's going to tell you, he's going to, he's going to talk about now your eyes. If your eye causes you to sin or offend, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. What must have been going through the disciples' minds as they're hearing these words? We, we want to know who's the greatest. And Jesus, you're putting the focus back on us. Like there's some problem here with us that we've got to deal with. And if they were hearing Jesus that way, by the way, I'm not sure that they did hear Him that way at this point. But if they were hearing Him that way, eventually, eventually, 11 of them did. One of them didn't. This is a statement of comparative value. He is saying, and, and, and I have wrestled with this. This is not the first time he uses this kind of language. He used it back in chapter 5, remember, in a different context. Speaking about adultery in that context. But here he's speaking to his disciples in a different context. And this is a statement of comparative value. What you are holding on to. Your hands. Or walking in. Your feet. Or gazing upon. Your eyes. That is more valuable than life. What is more valuable? than life, than Jesus, than me, than the kingdom of heaven. What is more valuable? Jesus is not saying, mutilate your body. 
I got to thinking about that. First thing that came to my mind, well, probably not the first thing, but one of the things was, what good would that do? I mean, if I cut off one hand, I've got the other hand. If I cut off one foot, I've got the other foot. Pluck out one, I've got the other eye. What good would that do? Am I going to mutilate my way into the kingdom of heaven? Is that what this is about? Somebody said if Jesus was, in, was talking about uh, literal mutilation, we'd all be walking around with stubs. You can't earn life or the kingdom of heaven by self-mutilation. That's not the point. The problem is deeper than the hand, foot, eye. Those are representative. Your heart controls your hand, foot, and eye. The next funeral we have, that, that body laying in the cast, it's got hands, feet, and eyes. There ain't nothing going on. The problem is not the hand, foot, and eye. The problem is what's driving it. The problem is what's moving it. And what I hear Jesus saying is that anyone who holds on to sin, who walks in the way of the ungodly, or is controlled by the lust of the eye, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is serious business. And that's exactly what is stated by Paul in more than one place. I'll just read this one, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's the kingdom of heaven. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. We're living in a world, and even a religious world, that is very deceptive. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. You hear what he's saying here? He doesn't say someone who commits a, an act of fornication. He said fornicators. Now, you know, I hear, you know, sometimes in evangelism, people will say things like, uh, have you ever done, have you ever lied? Yeah, well, then you're a liar. Really? I mean, it's so... I'm not going to ask you, if you're a Christian, what's, what's the latest sin that you committed? Does that characterize you? Is that what we should call you? So, so this is something deeper than an act. This is a heart issue that's being talked about here, you see. Fornicators, this is, this is your life. This characterizes you. Your hand, your foot, your eye. You're full of it. It's inside of you, you see nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, neither thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. This is who you once were. Characterized your life. But that's not who you are anymore, is it? You're washed. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're set apart by the Spirit of God unto Christ, in Christ, with the Father, and there's where the resource for the victory in your life comes, right? You have a changed heart. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our, of our God. Jesus says, Jesus says, 
everlasting hellfire is the awful consequence of holding on to and following after sin. If you are holding on to and following after sin, it is a revelation of where your heart is, where your love is. You love sin over Him. And so Jesus is saying to His disciples, lose everything that causes you to stumble away from Jesus. Nothing in this world is worth holding on to if it's keeping you from Jesus who alone will save you from everlasting hell fire. By the way, this only is meaningful if you really do believe there is an everlasting hell fire. Right? I mean, if you don't believe that, then this is just a meaning. Jesus is just, just speaking words. If you believe this, and you see the nature of sin, then you will say, I don't want that and I don't want to be a cause of anyone continuing in sin by concealing any truth, even this truth, the warning of Jesus from you. I am telling you that nothing in this life is worth losing your soul over. Jesus has already said that really, didn't He? Back in chapter 16, verse 26. But what profit is it, is it to a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? My heart wept. As I was thinking about preaching this this morning, and I said, Lord, my prayer is, Lord, would you make these words alive and real? Some soul under the ministry of your words here today. There is nothing in this world. There's nothing in your life. There's nothing about you that is worth losing everything for. And the, the worst thing that you lose is a relationship with God. Father, Son and Spirit being brought into that forever communion with Him. Sin separates. He gets very personal, doesn't He? He says, if thy hand, if your hand, singular, if your hand, He says, or foot, or eye, He says, cut it off and cast it from you. Pluck it out and cast it from you. Believers, he's speaking to you and me. Disciples. Or at least professed disciples. I know all 12 of them professed. One of them wasn't. But he's speaking to believers who understand that sin is the cause of the wrath of God. Am I out of line in saying that sin is the cause of the wrath of God? Let me, let me read Scripture to you. Colossians 3, 5 through 7. Therefore, put to death your members. Who's he talking to here? These are saints. These are those who are risen with Christ. These are those who have a relationship with God in Christ. You have life. You, you have his life. He says, therefore, put to death. You're the only ones who can do this. Put to death your members. 
which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And your hand, foot, eyes are the means by which these things are carried out. He says, verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But, but little children who believe in Jesus, that's not you. But we understand anything causing us to sin or anything that would move us away from simple trust and dependence upon Jesus and life in his kingdom must be drastically dealt with. It must not be cut and coddled. It must be cut and cast from you. Flee fornication, right? Flee it. This is Jesus' message to saints through the through the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is similar language. I think it helps us to hear what Paul said to sort of bring to light what Jesus is saying in Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 24. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And then Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death. That's what Jesus is saying. Put to death. Put it to death. Cut it off. Put to death. The deeds of the body. You will live. So believers, because sin does not have dominion over us any longer, we must yield our What's that next word? We must yield our members. Isn't that interesting? He uses that word, members. He's talking about members of your body. Hand, foot, eye. You must, and, and, and you're gonna, so, so what's gonna yield? How are you gonna yield these members? It's gonna be because there's been a change within. Your heart has been changed, right? You, you, you have, you've died with Christ. You've risen with Him. You're in union with Him. And it's following that that Paul says this. Yield our members as instruments of righteousness to God, not as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Too many professing Christians, sometimes led by errant teaching, do not see sin for what it is. It's just simply not an issue. It's not even talked about. It's, it's, it's a non-entity. It's, just, it's meaningless. Jesus would have us think differently. His little children who believe on Him are not appointed to wrath. Aren't you thankful for that? We're not appointed to wrath. We're no longer children of wrath. Ephesians 2. That's what we once were. Just like others. Children of wrath. But no longer. No longer. But knowing what sin was doing to you, if you really believe it, 
And you really understand that it does not have dominion over you anymore in Christ. In any way. It will not be your paymaster in the end. The wages of sin is death. But not for you, Christian. Not for you, believer. Not for you, little child who believes on Jesus. But knowing these things, we must cut off every relationship with it. Let not sin therefore reign. Right? In your mortal body. Hand, foot, eye. Your mortal body. Now, in this context, and I'm about done. In this context, Jesus' imperative to cut and cast, pluck and cast, is to His disciples whose lives will have an impact and an influence upon others. That's the connection here. Mortify, He says to them. Mortify, He says to this preacher. Mortify, He says to you who are His children, and especially those who are being used in some sort of public way. Mortify every impulse of your flesh that would turn you away from Jesus to sin. And in doing so, have a negative, destructive effect upon others. Don't forget that your life is like a signpost that others see. Let your life point them to Jesus. Now, Jesus is not using scare tactics here. What He is doing is He's facing us with reality. And frankly, the reality is scary if you remain in your sin. Mr. Spurgeon said this, let the reader note that the terrible terms here employed are not the creation of the dark dreams of medieval times, but are the words of the loving Jesus. And so I say to me and I say to you, listen to Him. Or to use the words of Scripture, hear Him. Hear Him. And respond as a little child. As a little child. One that is converted. whose heart is changed. And I'm listening to you. And, 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 and all of those questions that are coming to your mind. All of those, yeah, but, yeah, but, what about, what about. Please, please don't let that offend you. Trip you up. You hear what I'm saying? Like a little child. Trust Him. Trust Him. And let nothing cause you to stumble away from Jesus. He's the Savior. He will always be our Redeemer who was sent to bring us into relationship with the triune God. And guard your heart that you not become the ones Jesus is speaking of here. A cause of stumbling to His dear little ones. The effect that this has had upon me, and I, and I asked that question, um, Jesus, what, what effect do you want this to have upon us? And the, effect, the effect that it's had upon me is it's caused me to just stop. And, and I, I, of course, I don't want to lead anybody away from Jesus, but I don't even want to lead anybody to a misstep.
And you say, and you say, well, that sounds like bondage. Brethren, that is not bondage. That's coming from something that God has worked in me. And I, I desire that he works that in you. A love, a love for, for one another. And so I want to be careful how I say what I say to you. I want to be careful what I say to you. And I want to be a help to you to lead you in that simple childlike faith to Jesus Christ who loves you and will love you to the end. Father, I pray that You'd bless this Word too.